If you uh, have your Bible, I would encourage you to keep it open to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. We're not going to be able to go through that whole portion this morning. We're really going to need to divide that up into three, I think, but uh, we'll get a good start on it. And uh, I've called this portion the the three hours. We'll come to why. Uh, Peter, having brought his main thought to us thus far in this letter, he brought it to us in verse 3, uh, or pardon me, in uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. This, of course, to people who are undergoing some persecution. Some of it's blatant and very difficult. Some of it's more um, uh, let's, uh, more tame. Uh, more having to do with just ostracism, not being as close to one's neighbors, and so on and so forth. But he gives us that summary, which we covered last week. And as having the self-identity of God's elect exile shown to us, and how the principle can be lived out in three contexts, that we're to live it out as elect exiles with governments, uh, in our work environments, and lastly, in the home. We teased out all of those in a lot of detail. And having exhorted us on how to encourage and support one another in, in the body of Christ when in these trials and tribulations and persecutions for the name of Christ that may come our way, now Peter is going to get intensely practical and useful. He's going to give us some very powerful tools to encourage us and to equip us to accomplish what he's called us to. And he's challenged us in a large way because he's challenged us in a way that is so different from the way the world functions, from the way fallen humanity responds to these things. So this is what occupies the text from 13 through 22. We can only unpack the beginning of those this morning. We're going to do verses 3 through, or 13 through 17, and I'm calling this the three hours of encouragement. He's really giving us an opportunity. Now, when I was in school, or when I was young especially, we were supposed to know the three hours, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Of course, that meant that you were misspelling at least two of those. So that's, that's not quite where, where Peter is. I think he's doing a little better in, in this regard. Uh, but he's going to bring us to these these three. He's going to start off in 13 through 14, helping us. This is a tool again for us to use as we confront the fallen world around us and redefines harm. I, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm a big fan of the people's court. I don't know why. Um, it's, it's a foible, a, a problem in my humanity, which my wife uh, castigates regularly. She, she just she rolls her eyes when I turn to the people's court. But, and it's not because I think Judge Millian is so cute. The, um, there's just something that goes on in that, in that dynamic. But I am stunned at how many people will sue for pain and suffering because someone brought them to court. They haven't suffered any pain. But they, they want to sue for it. I mean, somebody said something bad to me. Or one person I saw just this week, they called them on the phone and said, you owe me, you've owed me this money for a year. When are you going to start paying up? And the person wanted to sue for harassment because the person had called them and said, you've owed me this money for a year. Um, we, we 
can term these things pain and suffering, but believe me, there's a lot different here. So he wants us to redefine harm from a biblical perspective as citizens of Christ's kingdom. This whole thing is to move our mindset to what it really means to be part of Christ's kingdom and not just part of this fallen world and use their mindset. And then in 15a, he's going to help us realign our understanding. How does the universe work under Christ's lordship? And we want to discuss that in a lot of detail. I'll probably camp on that more than the others. And then in 15b through 17, to remember our mission as Christ's emissaries in the world. We don't want to forget our mission as we undergo the different things that come our way. So to redefine harm from uh, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, to realign our understanding of how the universe works under the authority of Christ's active lordship, and then remembering our mission in all of the circumstances we're in so that as Christ's emissaries, we function well in the world. So that'll take us to this first one, redefining harm as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Here's the text. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So I want to note out of this passage first that some people in this world will try to harm us simply because we're Christians and want to do good. Simply because we're followers of Christ. And that we're unashamed of following Christ and unashamed to say he is the truth, the life, and the way, and others are not. It seems like the only unpardonable sin in our society today is to be certain about anything. If you actually have the audacity to say, I know that this is the truth, everybody thinks you're, you're bigoted, everybody thinks you're, somehow you've, you've come off the hinges and you're the terrible person. But Jesus made very definitive statements. The Bible makes qualitative truth statements throughout that are meant to last in every circumstance, in every age, among every people group. And that seems to be very difficult for people in our day and age. And so to say that someone must come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life and to have their sins forgiven seems very narrow-minded. For Jesus to say to Nicodemus in John, you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you are. In our day, that's considered absolute blasphemy. How can you say there's only one way? Well, because God says, and God gets to say. I mean, George Carlin used to say he's the the, the one who was first, so he got the best name, and he gets to say everything. It's his universe. And he gets to say, some will try to harm us. And so this is reality. It's to be expected that people in the world are not going to understand and are going to fight against the Christian mindset. We shouldn't be so shocked about it. And we shouldn't be going on TV and radio all the time saying, this fallen world, how they treat us. Well, yeah. What do we expect? Jesus said, if they, if they treated me this way, don't you think they're going to treat you that way? What, what's the big deal? But you would think that it is our right to be respected in all things. It just doesn't function that way. We ought not to be too surprised if in this fallen world we suffer some injustice. 
Wasn't Jesus' crucifixion itself the single most unjust act ever committed by human hands? And if He endured this, and in fact came for that very purpose, when He calls us to Himself, He says, enter into my life, into my mission, into my purpose. And so, this is going to be part and parcel of what happens. So should it shock us then if we're treated wrongly at times? No. This is what sin looks like when it's unmasked. It is grotesque and it's ugly and it's fearsome. But I want you to note, secondly, that God does not define harm often the way that we do. Identical words, you all know this, can mean different things to different people in different contexts. I have a friend that I correspond with quite a bit in England, and if I were to say to him, you've got to be in your bonnet, he would understand that to say, how would I know that he has a bug under the hood of his car? Because the bonnet is the hood of the car. And I, he would think I'm speaking of a bug when I'm saying, hey, something's bothering you. Or if I were to say to him, I've got a pebble in my boot, he would say, why are you telling me that you have a stone in the trunk of your car? Because that's what a boot is in England. It's the trunk of your car. The same words, but they mean very, very different things. And so Peter here is echoing what he has heard from Jesus when he talks about harm in a whole different way than we automatically think of it. Going back to Luke 21 and 16. You will be delivered. This is Jesus talking to the disciples as he's sending them out to preach and to teach and to heal. And, and then he goes on to say what's going to happen even in the end times. And he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. That sounds pretty harmful. But what's the next sentence? You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Oh, wait a minute. Put to death, hair on my head won't perish, doesn't compute. But you see, he's looking at things from such an entirely different perspective than the world does that for him, he can say to be put to death for the cause of Christ isn't to suffer harm. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't take that in very easily. That doesn't compute with me automatically. Peter knows it doesn't compute either. And that's why he's stressing it in these very points. Harm in this life can be only physical and emotional, and at that it is only temporary. But compared to eternal spiritual harm, these things are nothing. If we could only keep that balance somehow in our hearts when we're tested this way. It reminds me, just a few weeks ago, we started a Wednesday night study. We've been going through the minor prophets and the first one to be done was Jonah, and I got the pleasure of doing Jonah. And uh, I remarked to everyone that night, I read the book of Jonah for years. I've probably read it dozens of times. I've studied it. I don't like Jonah. Not the book, him. <laughs> to me, he's a simpering wimp. He's narcissistic. He's, he's childish. He's gripey. I, it, the, the guy just doesn't click with me. However, after studying the book in order to actually teach on it, 
my mind was completely turned around and, and now he's one of my heroes. I can't tell you why. If you'd been here on Wednesday night, you'd have known. But anyway, uh, there's a fascinating thing that happens in Jonah chapter 2. And that is all of Jonah chapter 2 is a prayer while Jonah is in the belly of the fish. And this is the way the prayer starts off. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, or hell. I cried, and you heard my voice. The whole prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, mind you, he is submerged in the belly of a fish having been thrown overboard because he had been disobedient to God. So how does a prayer of thanksgiving fit in that context? Well, because it's a matter of perspective. At this moment in that fish, he's alive. When he, in fact, was deserving of, and by the very fact that he was swallowed by the fish, was preserved from the hell of which there's no return. So, yes, it's hot in there. I've never been inside a fish, but I'm told if you're swallowed, it's hot. And it's dark. He doesn't have a candle. He doesn't have a a flashlight. And it's smelly. There's a bunch of other rotting fish in there. It's uncomfortable. And the future, at this moment even, is uncertain. But it's still not eternal separation from God which he knew he deserved. It wasn't suffering eternally in hell because he had rejected his God and was living under his undiluted wrath. Anything is better than that. Anything. And so if I'm in this fish because I've been disobedient and God is chasing me and bringing me to a better place, oh, that's so much better than hell. And he can respond that way in thanksgiving. Beloved, no matter what we endure in this life, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, every pain, every trial, every circumstance will end in this life. And there will be eternal life with Him. This is endurable. If you can see light at the end of the tunnel. Peter says, redefine what you understand is harm. There's harm and then there's harm. There's harm that hurts and it's going to hurt for a while. I remember um, it was uh, January of 1988 and I was driving home from my job, which was downtown at the time. I was working for Cable Wiedemer and I was coming through what was then called the can of worms. They've since untangled it. And as I came through the can of worms and onto uh, 490 heading toward the Penfield exit, traffic came to a stop. It didn't slow down. It just came to a sudden stop. And so I tried to stop. But I looked in my rearview mirror and I could see that the tractor trailer behind me could not. And I said to myself, spiritual man that I am, in those moments, pondering my death, he can't stop. That's the only thought that went through my mind. I woke up in the ambulance. And matter of fact, later, uh, 
it was kind of fun. I'm sitting there in the ambulance trying to say, okay, I'm coming to feet respond, hands respond, you know, do I, am I alive? And taking the, the glass out of my shirt pocket and, and brushing it out of my hair, because uh, he hit me and pushed us through five other cars. My, my seat broke and the bumper of the tractor trailer, my headrest was touching the bumper of the tractor trailer. And so I'm in this, this ambulance trying to get my grips on what's going on. And, and I said to the, this was, this is a moment of real clarity. I said to the ambulance driver, I take it there's been an accident. (laughs) He, um, you know, gave me that kind of, okay, we're not sure how bad the head trauma really is. Um, and, and then a few minutes later, while I'm starting to feel somewhat settled down and things are coming clear, uh, the door of the ambulance opened and it was a Monroe County Sheriff and he looked at me and he said, what car were you in? I said, well, I was in the black Taurus out there, the one the tractor trailer hit. He said, oh, I thought you were dead. That's why I left you in the car. Now, I felt real good right up until that moment. I, I was okay till then, all right? And then everything started to, to kind of crash in on me. But I was alive. Now, my doctor later, a couple weeks later, both of my legs turned jet black from the soles of my feet up to about mid-calf. And so I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you're such an idiot. He said, don't you realize that in the impact, you ripped all the tendons off both sides of both of your ankles and they're kind of in there flopping around and bleeding. So you've got to stop walking. And, uh, and I said, oh, great. Okay. How long is this going to be an issue? And he said, your feet will hurt for eight to 10 years. Prepare for it. And they did. They hurt every day for 10 years and then they started to feel better. Anything we suffer in this life is temporary. It will all end and we will be with Christ. So wait on Him. Anything is better than living under His undiluted wrath for eternity. And when someone like Jonah was in this passage has been so close to utter destruction, being saved by only an inch is cause for great celebration and thanksgiving. Beloved, we're going to be saved by far more than an inch. And so we can look at where we are and say, yes, it's painful. Maybe for some of you right now, you're enduring very difficult trials or circumstances. It's not forever. And if you're Christ's, there is an eternity ahead. That is so transcendent that the Apostle Paul can say it's not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. It's just not worthy. But man, it's hard to keep that perspective when you're in the midst of difficulty. Peter's Peter's calling on us for that. I want you to note thirdly in this portion that the world's harm can't diminish our blessedness. That as citizens of Christ's kingdom, he has promised that irrespective of the harm the world may think to do us, to do to us, it does not mean that we aren't blessed at the same time. And so to consider ourselves blessed because we're in him. In fact, part of the redemptive work of Christ on our behalf is to so govern his people that evil perpetrated against us by the world or the devil is actually utilized for our good. 
Now, I want to keep a real important balance here because sometimes this has gotten way out of balance by those who, as I would, cling uh, to the clear testimony of Scripture regarding the absolute sovereignty of God in all things on the earth. But because God is absolutely sovereign over everything does not mean that evil ceases to be evil. There are things really wrong in the world. But such is God's sovereignty that one and the same event can have evil intent by one party and yet have good intent by God at the same time. And so we come to to understand how that functions. We don't erase the fact that some things are bad simply because God is sovereign over all. What we do is we understand that evil functions and God functions and due to Christ's redemptive work, we can overcome This was the pronouncement of Joseph in Genesis 50 when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. You remember the account. They said to Joseph, well, here it is. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, you remember, they sold him into slavery when he was a teenager. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, they lied. This was a nice way to try and get out of a problem. Oh, well, we'll just lie about the evil we did. We did evil, but the lying isn't evil? That they're really messed up. So your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Notice it gets labeled as what it is, evil. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. When Joseph heard it, he wept. He wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. Yes, you acted out of evil motives. But in that one and same event, God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph doesn't deny their evil motives. He doesn't baptize their actions as though they actually did a good thing. But he says, I know more than what you did. Yes, what you did is evil, but God was also working. And in his sovereignty, this was good. He doesn't, he doesn't call evil good or good evil. He doesn't lose the distinction. But he understands that we live in a, a dual reality. He acknowledges their evil intent, but notes God's own good intent in the very same event. We see this all the way through Scripture, as a matter of fact. In Acts chapter 2, this is when Stephen was being stoned. And he's, he's talking to those who are about to kill him. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of... Oh, I'm sorry, this is uh, Peter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, note the the parallel here, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God was acting and carrying out his eternal plan And you were acting by the hands of wicked and lawless men. 
Note that Peter doesn't commend them for having accomplished God's will in Christ's crucifixion. Just the opposite. He condemns them for their wickedness. Jesus brings this to light in Mark chapter 14. For the Son of Man goes, talking about his own death and betrayal. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him. I'm going to fulfill the will of the Father. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if that man had never been born. Because God had provided salvation through the shed blood of Jesus doesn't vindicate Judas from his treachery. So we don't pronounce evil good and good evil in recognizing Christ's redemptive work, but we see that he makes our sufferings, the, the very sufferings sometimes perpetrated by those who are truly evil and wicked, he makes those very same sufferings a source of blessing for us. We do glory in that, such as both his power and his love toward the believer. What an astounding place to live. And it takes some careful understanding from the Word of God. So the first was that we had to redefine harm and redefine it in God's ways. Secondly, we note in 15a that we need to realign our understanding of how the universe works under Christ's Lordship. Look at the the text. But in your hearts, knowing that you're going to suffer harm, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I want to stop right there. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is a theology-packed statement. Huge. First, it is Jesus Christ who is Lord. The one who loves us with the infinite love of God The one who came to die in our place, bearing the full wrath of God upon human sin for the salvation of all who will believe. He is Lord. And no one else, nor the circumstances that we face. He is Lord. Remember the character of Christ. The person that has died for you. So in the midst of trial, remember first, it is Jesus Christ who is Lord over all. It's not this world. It's not randomness. It's not chance. It's not, it's not the people of this world. It's not the devil. Although some would teach that, unfortunately. No, Christ is Lord of all. Secondly, Jesus Christ is Lord. This Jesus who loves us with the infinite love that he gave his very life for us, he is Lord, he's not a disinterested bystander. My 10th grade science teacher was Mr. McCrank. Great name, huh? I liked Mr. McCrank. He and I were friends. He lived not far from our house. And he was just a lovely human being. And we got to talking one day after a class. And uh, he made it known to me that he was a deist. That's how he qualified himself. And I said, well, how does a deist understand the universe works? And he said, as a deist, this is how I understand it. God created the universe. And like a giant clock, he wound it up. 
And he set it down and it is running under its own power until it runs out. He doesn't get involved in the affairs of men. He doesn't interfere with human beings. He's just letting his universe run. I just thought that was so sad. And it's so contrary to Scripture. When we find out that that he's not a disinterested bystander, but that Christ actively rules in his universe... There's no such thing as chance or randomness in his mind. So for Peter and for for Peter's readers in this first audience, Caesar's not Lord. No government or no ruler is Lord. Now, now we use that word and we, we have to be careful. You think of the Queen of England. The Queen of England has no power. She's just a figurehead. And I think some of us begin to think when we hear that Jesus Christ is Lord, that that, that just means he has a title. He's a figurehead, but he isn't actively working in his universe. The Bible paints a very different picture. He is sovereignly administrating his universe. As Charles Spurgeon used to say, I don't believe in the laws of nature. He said, what I believe is that God administrates his universe with such regularity that we have come to treat those actions as laws or properties of their own. It's a fascinating way to look at the world. He he is Lord. Christ is Lord of all. This is the, the great profession of faith that every new believer would make when he was baptized in the early church because he had to repudiate that Caesar was Lord. Caesar claimed to be the sovereign over all of his subjects' lives. And no, when you got baptized, you said, Ho Jesu Christu, Jesus is Lord. I have no Lord but, but Christ He rules my life. I serve Him. That's the nature of becoming a Christian. If you think that you can have Christianity and salvation apart from the person of Christ in His offices, you just want a religion. Let's put it in in simple terms. You're a gold digger. You don't want to marry Him or you just want to marry Him so you can get eternal life and forgiveness of sins and not go to hell. That's the definition of a gold digger. That that isn't how we come to saving knowledge of Christ. We receive Him as Lord of our lives. That He now has right to rule. And we give up the right of self-rule. Or what we thought was the right, it was the usurped right of self-rule. He's Lord. I love Isaiah 40. We can only look at a, a portion of it this morning. Picking up in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Span is four inches. It's this. He's marked off the heavens with just the the palm of his hand. He's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who is this person who's done this, who stands in this relationship to the physical creation? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? I try on a regular basis. I tell God there's better ways to do certain things. But he has not yet taken my counsel on anything. What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult 
And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? I love this today. We've got people who say, oh, you know, it's terrible. You preach that that God elects people and saves them sovereignly. Yes. Well, we don't think that's just. Really? Are you going to teach him the path of justice? Or he shouldn't send people to hell for eternity because sin isn't all that bad. Really? You know the way of understanding. And God is somehow deficient and needs to help, needs you to help kind of fill in the gaps for him. Talk about making God of ourselves. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And they're accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he, he takes the coastlands up like fine dust. Lebanon, which was known for its forests, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. You can't do enough to win his favor by your good works or your religious works. doesn't work that way. All the nations are as nothing before him. They, they, they can't do anything. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering like that chooses wood that will not rot, and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, people of God, why do you say, why do you speak, O Israel, especially when we're undergoing difficulty, well, my way is hidden from the Lord, or my right has been disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. But he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But... They who wait for the Lord, they shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. This is 
Jesus Christ. Lord of all. I don't think elephants are really threatened by mosquitoes. And I don't think our God is threatened by anything on this earth. And as His, we are safe in His hand. So remember, it's Jesus Christ who's Lord. And this Jesus Christ truly is Lord. He is actively ruling over His universe. And lastly, Jesus Christ the Lord is holy. That's what that verse tells us, isn't it? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He is holy and he is ontologically holy. It's his nature. He can't be anything other than he is. He must be holy at all times. And because that's so, he cannot sin against us. He cannot neglect us. He cannot fail us. It's not that he won't. He can't. It's impossible for him. He can only act for our good as those who are purchased by the blood of Christ and made His. And how then to let those considerations govern our thoughts and our attitudes rather than whose hands it is we suffer by. Astounding. But then lastly, he says in verses 15b through 17, to remember our mission as Christ's emissaries in the world. Let me pick up that portion. <clears throat> but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Man. What astounding things. Now, in our present climate today, Christian, this is something we need to, to hear and I'm, I'm troubled by what I see in the evangelical world in our day. In Proverbs, we're told clearly, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Now, in our current climate, especially given the, the upcoming... Uh, election. I wonder how many of us, in fact, are just waiting for our enemy to fall. How many of us have already stored up some sort of vitriol and hatred against those who don't hold our point of view, whichever side of the fence you're on? This response to bad treatment is so counterintuitive to normal human responses, it will evoke wonder from those who observe it in us. 
And I know that this verse is often quoted only in terms of uh, apologetics as a general idea, that all of us should have an answer for the hope that, that dwells within us. But Peter's statement here is specific to how we respond to suffering. That in our suffering, and most especially in our being persecuted for living for Christ, that our hope in Christ in it is so profoundly different and evident to the world around us that observers are absolutely compelled to find out why we aren't hopeless and hapless, but content and at peace and fearless and rejoicing, even in what's going on. And this then serves as a means to redeem that suffering and make it a means whereby the gospel is preached and Christ is put forward before men. This is the hope that's so remarkable that men can't help but wonder where it comes from. And that we make this response to them not as though defiant and self-triumphant, but with what? With gentleness and respect. The text says that they're being put to shame for treating us badly is not to be a means of revenge for us, but a means of showing God's grace and mercy for the sake of their souls. A worry at just how counter-scriptural it is and how unlike the Spirit of Christ it is when I hear self-confessed Christians dancing on the ruined reputations and lives of those who have opposed us. I think that's such a problem. And again, I think in terms of the current political context and how much venom by supposed Christians gets spewed at candidates that we dislike and especially if some dirt from their past comes out or they get defeated. Why do we not hate them any more than we fear them and maintain our joy and hope and peace? Because we're Christ's and he's Lord and he's holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Why do you hope when things look so bad at times for Christians? Well, in gentleness and respect, let me tell you, about the wonder of my Savior, of Christ the Lord, who is holy. I I fear that American Christianity has fallen from this kind of thinking and acting in a horrific way. Now, who but our wondrous God would have put forth this kind of a pattern to follow? (laughs) Man, what a glorious God we serve. So how are we to live this supernatural life that Peter has been reminding us that we're called to in this dark and hostile world? First and foremost, by remembering the three R's. To redefine harm, understanding the difference between the temporal and the spiritual, what belongs to this world and this temporary life and what belongs to eternity and the life that we have in Christ and the spiritual reality. And realigning our understanding of what it looks like to live in a universe, to actually believe that we live in a universe that is ruled by Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is holy. And to live there in confidence and peace 
and to remember our mission. That we, we begin to live this way in the world around us so that we can reach men with what is really the transforming work of Christ that allows us to live in a different place than those who are around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word again today. I thank you for the challenge. I know that myself, with many others, we read this passage, we go through these individual points, and we say, man, that's a tall order. And it is. It's an order that is meant to display something of the transcendent presence of the Spirit of Christ in His people in this world. Light has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And the darkness has not choked it out, has not comprehended it, as the one text says, has not extinguished it. But by saving grace, as you have caused many to be born again by your Spirit, as men and women have heard the gospel and have come to you and relinquished their rulership over self to be reunited to you, acknowledging their sin and and being made new creatures in Christ by your Spirit. Now we're let loose in this world to carry that light of Christ everywhere we go. And it is to be so different than the world around us that men and women can't help but say, what is this? Like Moses turning aside to see the burning bush that isn't consumed. And how is it that we can, we can still blaze and be unconsumed by the darkness around us only because of Christ? Oh Lord, I'm certain that there are those here today who are still outside the saving knowledge of our Redeemer. They're still depending on religion. They're still depending on their own innate goodness. They think they're okay. And that you'll just come along and give them a helping hand to be all that they should be. And they've not yet come to the full knowledge of their rebellion against you. Of their sin. And of its depths and how it has worked its way into the fabric of every thought and every motive and everything in life. And Lord, I would pray that you would open their eyes to it today, not... Not to condemn them, but to give them the wherewithal to flee to Christ for mercy and grace and to find open and waiting arms and a salvation prepared in His own shed blood dying in our place. That they would bow the knee to this Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is holy. And for my brothers and sisters who are in Christ and yet struggling today. It seems as though the darkness of the world has conspired against them in some things. Some are just natural tragedies and difficulties and hardships. But in all of them, if we can remember that you see harm so differently and 
that if they are yours, even in the belly of the whale, they're safe. And that you are still their Lord in all of their circumstances. And that in these very things, you give grace for them to make the glory of Christ known in a fallen world. Lord, strengthen my brothers and sisters in Christ. Give them a fresh breath of your spirit to encourage their hearts and minds. To know that in you, all is well. Father, press these truths upon our hearts in the ways that we need them most. And make us to see Christ in His glory, we ask in His name. Amen. We stand with me, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.